Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. I'm going to cut to the chase on this one because I'm sure a lot of people would be excited to get straight to the point. This is a conversation with uh, Scott Burns, legendary death metal producer, uh, Morris Sound aficionado, and author David Gelk. Uh, they're talking about the book, The Scott Burns Sessions, A Life in Death Metal, 1987 to 1997, which as I speak, I believe is now shipping. I think when we recorded this about a month or so ago, it was like in the works of being shipped through Decibel. Um, now I think it's it's going out the door, so get your act together and go and order that shit. Uh, I'll drop a link in the description and whatnot. Anyway, let's get straight to it. One, two, fuck shit up. The way I want to sort of tackle this is talk primarily about the book, sort of not go too much into the, the band details because a lot of that is covered in the book and I don't want to spoil it. Um, and hopefully we'll just keep it very casual and have a good time and hopefully it'll be wrapped in about 45 I think something like that if that's oh, cool sounds good Jim yep so you you seem to be dominating David a particular period in history can I can I ask what made you start this project and what 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 brought it to your table related to Scott you mean correct yes yeah well it stems from the obituary book that's how I got to know Scott really well during the obituary book i think we spoke three or four times and every time we spoke it got better and better and we quickly developed a rapport not only because we both had a shared love of obituary and death metal but scott and i are aligned in many ways outside of music whether it be politically socially uh, economically environmentally all those things maybe the only difference we have is we like different sports teams he likes the Tampa team, so the Rays, the Bucks. Uh, I, I live in Pittsburgh, and I'm a Pirates fan, but for football, I'm a Browns fan, so I think that's where we diverge. But no, um, the obituary book wrapped, I think, late 2021. Scott sent me an email saying, hey, I've been thinking about doing something on my own with my friend Tim Hubbard, who has books, uh, pictures in the obituary book, that cover that you just shared. Jim, that was Tim's work, and hmm. Scott asked me if I'd be interested in helping him put something together, and I think it took me maybe two seconds to say yes to do it, and um, I mean, it was a really easy decision to make just based on the type of person Scott was, and the original vision was just uh, for the book to cover off on the bands that Tim took pictures of. Then you find, yeah, Tim's got a great photo archive and library, but there are way more bands that Scott did that Tim didn't happen to shoot. And then you start yeah. to do research and find out exactly how many bands Scott recorded, how many records he was a part of. Then once we got rolling, almost everyone wanted to participate because everyone said, you know, sort of the key terms there, Scott's a cool dude. He's... He's easygoing, relaxed. I'd love to talk about Scott Burns. Like, you know, very few bands turned me down or I wasn't able to get in touch with. And it really just snowballed from there. And it tied into Scott's original request. You know, once we found out we didn't have enough pictures, Scott said, well, can you at least try and find enough bands that I recorded? And the famous line was, I'd hate to be that guy walking down the street and run into one of the bands I recorded and them to say, hey, Scott, I see you have a book. Why is my band not in it? So oh, I always, shit. that always was in the, that was always in my head when assembling the book is that I wouldn't want to let Scott down by not trying to to scour every nook and cranny of the internet, looking for <laughs> obscure bands that he recorded. We got, I mean, the end count was 69. 
Scott probably did ballpark probably close to 90 bands. And that's just probably based on his tenure at Morris Sound and the fact that not every band was documented that he recorded. So it was an easy call to make. Scott is an easy guy to work with. Um, mm. We were already friends going into the project. We even became even better friends throughout. So that it's a big book, obviously, but it was real. It was fairly simple to put together when you're working with somebody who you enjoy working with. And Scott wasn't very demanding. You know, I think he just said, "Don't make me look stupid," which is really easy. It's hard to make Scott look stupid, mm. so uh, right. it came together pretty yeah. easily. Yeah. Scott, you don't usually like the limelight, though, do you? Is this been a change of heart in recent years? No, I think like David alluded to is my buddy, Tim Hubbard, the photographer, the original thing was he talked about, you know, we were having lunch one day and he said, Hey, about having a book and showing all the photos and maybe talking about it. And I said, "Uh, I think I'd like that because it would be nice to talk about the bands because look, while the book is about me and the sessions it really is about all the great bands. I mean, my point of view is that I was a lucky guy that happened to like extreme music, metal, rock, right guy at the right time at a great studio and with a lot of great bands around, like you said, obituary and stuff. And as David said is, you know, we talked a bunch during the obituary book and I thought he was a cool guy and got to know each other better and better just from talking long sessions about John, Don, Trevor and the band. And, you know, and so when Tim brought it up, it became apparent to us that we don't really have the skill set, even though Tim's got like stiff pole records and stuff like that. He's done punk stuff and all that. It was would be hard for us and that's when david i asked him because i trusted him i said hey would you all it all be interested i had no idea if anybody would or not right like i said is uh, you know uh, so anyway but you know david said he talked to albert and they, were cool, and they said sure we'll do a book and and like i said is that's you know the thing i appreciate for what david did was is that he went and found all these bands i'll be honest with you some of these bands, I did not even remember recording, and I'm sorry to say that. But I mean is, I recorded a hell of a lot of bands back in the day. And once I remembered them, you know, some of them, I'm not saying all of them, but I mean, he dug through a lot of bands. Some of these were one-day sessions, four-hour sessions. But I never wanted anybody, like he said, to walk up to me and say, hey, man, why didn't you put me in the book? Because to me... They're all equal. I had a great time. And I think the fans are the ones, the divining rod or whatever, that decide who's better or not. It's not my, you know, it's not about me to say who's good or bad, right? Mm. Let everyone else decide. The fans decide. But I was just happy and lucky and humbled to be able to record them. And, you know, picking up on our conversation before we started is, I was lucky too with a lot of things like Borovoy and Monty. And a lot of the bands in the beginning that Dan Johnson did that gave me a shot, right, that said, hey, this guy's cool, right? I mean, you know, like I said is, you know, we'll go on to it later if you want, but death metal wasn't really cool in the beginning. It was really underground. And, yes, it had a following, but, you know, 
it wasn't the coolest thing in the world is. And a lot of people, especially in the recording world, weren't really into it. But that's it. How do you remember all the stories? Because it's, it's, it's the way it's structured in the book. It's almost academic, right? It's not like a long autobiographical prose. It's really well kind of um, arranged. It's really easy to follow. It's almost like an academic textbook for me, which sings to me a lot. So how do you remember That's all that? That's well, I would give Scott. I would give Scott a lot of clues and he would ask me to send him what really bailed us out was YouTube, actually, because a lot of these demos found their way onto YouTube. Otherwise, you know, Scott or I would have no way of finding them unless we hunted the bands down themselves. So Scott and I got into a very nice pattern. Once our way of working was we did all the big bands first. Like we blew through, I think the first one we did was Death. We probably spent a few weeks on Death. Then we moved through mm -hmm. the Deicides, uh, Suffocation. We didn't do Obituary because we already talked about Obituary for the book. So we, they were already done. It's the suffocations, like I said, um, the exhorters. We moved through a cannibal. We we moved through all those, mm -hmm. and then we sort of prioritized what bands to do next. And so then we got deeper and deeper into Scott's discography, and that's when we'd find bands. A really good example is the Toronto thrash band Overthrow, who, you know, Scott admitted like I haven't listened to these guys since 1990. I can't believe how good this is. And I said that I told Scott the same thing. It's like these guys are incredible. But before amazing. Scott and I talked, yeah, they're amazing. Before Scott and I talked, I sent him the links, and that's when he's like, holy shit, this is amazing. And that's when all the memories started flooding back. And so, you know, our interviews are really simple. It's like, Scott, what do you remember about recording Overthrows Within Suffering? And then he, it all started coming back to him like that. So I think simply by virtue of Scott listening to the band, as that helped jog his memory. But he's right. I mean, some of these things were like in and out, four hours. Uh, that that was it, band did one demo and then they fell off the face of the earth, but we, we managed to, Scott did a really good job of jogging his brain. And it also helped that sometimes we got responses from the bands in advance. So I would share that with Scott and then Scott like, okay, now I remember that. So that was, you know, it was sort of, we had to, we had to puzzle it together in a way. Cause you're, you're right, Jim. It's not, it's an oral history. You know, I mean, each, each band is led with a paragraph put together by, an intro put together by me, but really it's Scott and the bands telling the stories. And it's hard. It's hard to go back and remember something. I I'm 41. I can't tell you what I was doing 30 years ago. You know, we're asking mm -hmm. Scott to go back and uh, figure out things he's doing in 1988. I mean, that it's hard, but I'll get, I'll give him credit. He really dug into the far reaches of his brain and pulled stuff out. No, I think he's, we tried. Yeah, sure. We did. And, and once again is, a lot of great there's great bands all the time is but it was a great scene back then bands coming up in the beginning and like us you know some bands you know overthrow i mean david brop is a perfect example why they weren't bigger than they are i don't know they were killer and there's a lot of killer bands and some made it and some don't but the whole point of the book was is to remember these bands like I said, it's okay, it's me that recorded them, but it really is about the bands and the time for somebody who grew up in that era or whatever or who's fond of that era to go back and look on it and say, yeah, I remember those bands, or I dug the shit out of there, I saw that band and they kicked ass, or Demolition Hammer, or fucking pick any band. I mean, Gorguts, a lot of great bands, right? Suffocation, I mean, all the big bands, but that, that I think... 
David captured that, and I think that's what's important is that it really documents a period of metal and extreme music that was a golden era, if I may say that is. And like I said, there's still great bands coming out, but it really was at the time because it was different. Times were changing from King Diamond and Thrash to heavy vocals. And I'll stop is, but we see today is now no one talks about death metal or anything with brutal vocals. It's just metal. And that's a nice thing. Yeah. It's sort of giving it a seat at the table as part of, as part of the, the lineage and the DNA where we are now, as you say, metal is just considered anything that's sort of what would have been regarded brutal back in the day. David, so as an, from an objective perspective, what is so critical about this period that's like worth exploring? Why is it so culturally relevant? I'm not directly asking Scott because you've partially answered that and you lived it. So it's not yeah. fair. <laughs> well, it's, it's important. Yeah, Scott definitely did answer a part of that, but it's also important to note that Scott and more sound in general they were so pivotal in making extreme metal sound good. Because if we go back before then, you think of how the Venom records sounded or Bathory or the first few Possessed albums. If you want to go to Scream Bloody Gore, I don't think anyone would remark to you that, wow, the production is great on those the thrash bands all sounded better. You know, I think we even pointed out in the book, you know, once we got to 86 or 87, thrash started to sound pretty good. You know, like Master of Puppets sounded great. Rain and Blood sounded killer. Among the Living sounded sounded awesome. So, you know, someone someone or some studio needed to figure out how to make it sound good. And then once more sound became that place, that was the template. That was the barometer for everybody else. So the work that the production methods that Jim and Tom Morris started and Scott Wood help perfect i mean it was crucial think about the drums you know prior to that drums were always buried you could never make out the kick drums the snare was always uneven but and that stuff drove scott nuts and so you know he would always come in and say all right we got to get the drums to sound good and scott you know there's a lot of stories of scott being a master at tuning drums and getting drums to sound good and triggering and all those things all those things are so commonplace now and it touches on what Scott just said, you know, death metal is now just metal, but good production now is like, it's, it's almost a guarantee, right? Mm. You know, almost everyone, there's, there's almost no excuse now for a band not to have a good sounding record. But back then, you know, circa 1990, you needed a good studio and you needed a good producer like Scott. Otherwise you're, you're going to sound like garbage and Monty Connor's not going to sign you to Roadrunner. Brian, Brian Slagle's not going to care about you. Uh, all, all of these things. So uh, that was more sound and Scott are really the, were the purveyors of getting extreme metal. They laid the groundwork for how extreme metal is today. I think, you know, real, you know, and Dan Johnson to throw him in there, the sabotage yeah. records, the early nasty savage records, Slagles, you know, look, like I said, is they were a band incredible. And Jim did them incredible. But the vocals, right? More of the King Diamond style. They but the the riffing, they were brutal as fuck. But like he said, is a lot of studios did not care about metal. And Dan had damage, he had Crimson Glory, he had sabotage. He was a big influence. And Jim and Tom with their techniques, but it was hard back then to record and the stuff I did or the thrash bands, it was hard. 
as he said, with all those records, to record fast stuff and get clarity of it. And I think the thing was is a lot of engineers just were not scared of it, but just were like, this is supposed to sound bad, right? Or it's mm. not supposed to sound good. And the tech, right. the other thing is David alluded to was the technology nowadays is everybody could fucking sample everything and fly it in in seconds. It was harder back then. And, but to get the drums to sound good, it was work, but it sounded so heavy. You know what I mean? It was nice. So I think this point about Morrow sounding yourself, Scott, this turning point where there's a legitimization of this extreme outlier. I think this outlier genre, it can't be stressed enough, but I'm trying to think of different ways to articulate it so we can visualize why it's important. And I always sort of just go off onto little different tangents. And David, you mentioned something there that, you know, if there wasn't a Morrow sound, maybe there wasn't Glenn Benton's layered vocals being articulated and engineered to a point of quality. And maybe Monty didn't sign him. And then maybe Brian wasn't interested. And maybe Borovoy, if Three Cherries was still around at that point. I think it's Three Cherries. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, if they wouldn't have been interested. There's a whole ripple effect. There's a whole thing. And I think part of the Roadrunner, and I always bring it back to the Roadrunner documentary because I'm trying to obviously pull this thing together. But the whole point is. I believe that you take your favorite band in the entire world. There's probably 20 bands better than that band, but you'll never hear about them because Morrisound didn't happen or an equivalent didn't happen and it fell through the net. That's the point. There's a parallel universe out there where Morrisound didn't exist and it all happened in Canada and death metal sounds completely different in 2023 as a result. That's why it's important to me. And I'm just, that's why I'm just trying to regurgitate different ways of saying it because i think that's why it's critically important if we didn't have morris sound maybe joey jordison wouldn't have that similar influence on his drum sound therefore slipknot doesn't happen in the same way blah 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 blah, blah, blah. i think it's it's quite a delicate timeline of events which morris and scott have sort of inserted themselves into am i getting is that feeling resonant? That's sort of like your Back I'm, to the Future 2 comparison there, right? Yeah, is that what you're I'm, getting at? I think it, Am I burying myself into a hole here, or, is that, or am I arriving no, at consensus I, possibly? I think I think you make sense because more sound was just the right place at the right time. And Scott, Jim and Tom, and Dan Johnson, as you mentioned, were the right producers at the right time. And <laughs> you're right. You mentioned a guy like Joey Jordison or the, death, the next wave of death metal bands. They were all teenagers when Scott was producing so these were the guys i think of the dude from volbeat you know michael paulson who's a huge death metal guy he was of that age bracket when scott and more sound were around so they were they were being influenced by those records so yeah that next generation there was a lull and you know scott talks about it a lot and we talk about it a lot in the book that happened in the mid to late 90s but once we got past that into the 2000s you know then you had your slipknots and you know, Volbeat's obviously not death metal, but we know Michael Paulson's in the death metal, but all the next wave of bands, you know, the cattle decapitations and things like that. That's that's a result of more sound. Yeah, but there were I just to chime in is sure Morrison was influential, I agree, but you know, Skullsberg over in Sunlight. Sunlight in Europe and stuff. I mean there were bands, Colin was doing a good job, but I think in general was is that the biggest thing was is that there was a perception of metal that you had to be this proper form of metal, right? Like like I said, you know, 
Anthrax, I mean, uh, you were mentioning earlier, Jeff Waters, Annihilator. They were a huge Roadrunner band, right? Uh, King Diamond. So even though the bands that I was doing for them were doing well and had a following, they were nothing like the Anthraxes, the Slayers, the Metallicas, the Megadeths, Testaments, you know, Nuclear Assault. I mean, blah, blah, blah. We can go through the whole thing. Is And I think the attitude at the time within the record industry was this is proper metal or this is the future of metal. And this is just some kids having fun. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but I don't think anyone thought anything that this was more than a passing phase that ended up being more of an influential wave of metal. So I think that influenced the recording is because most engineers, you had to... (laughs) I was, I'll say this, if I can say one thing about myself is, I was young enough to appreciate it, right? Mm-hmm. I get it all, to be honest with you. I came from a more punk background. I listened to metal when I was a kid, Rainbow, everything, you know, <laughs> Black Sabbath, but Thin Lizzy, you name it, UFO, I loved them, Rush, everything. But when punk came around, I really liked it. And I think for a lot of older engineers is it was too fast. It was too heavy. And so I think that was a big influence on them. So that in other words, like you're mentioning these guys, future engineers and stuff is by then, like I said, it's my Tiger Woods analogy. Now everybody's seen one good golfer. Now they all say, Hmm. I know the big thing is back in the day is we were just all fucking figuring it out. We didn't have a fucking clue what we were doing. We were just trying to make it sound as good as we can. Nowadays, like you said, David mentioned cattle. All these guys in these bands, they know the drill. They got plugins. They know everything. They know what sounds heavy. There is no excuse for a fast band to sound bad nowadays unless you choose to. So, but because they've got experience behind. But anyway, that's just progression and that's awesome. This is what I like about learning more about you, Scott, because as a fan, when you approach a piece of information about the culture, it's immediately put on a pedestal. And the closer we get to you, Scott, the quicker we kind of learn that you're a problem solver, right? That's that's the key ingredient to what you brought. We've got this sound. It's a messy sound. It needs to sound good. Right, okay, what are our resources and what can we do? And that's what leads us to, say, triggering the drum, uh, the kick drums when there's, to lay off any sloppiness. Let's really think about the guitar tone. It's, it's a problem-solving um, campaign, for lack of a better term, rather than everything was, it was all about the evil, it was all about the grit, it was all, no, 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 we got an assignment, we were paid to do this record, and it just sounded like this, and we needed to, we needed to curate it and make it sound professional. Problem solving. Yeah, and no, you also have to remember Scott. Scott had what a week to do these records on a five thousand dollar budget, and he has Monty Connor calling him every other day in the studio, saying, "Hey, Scott, these suffocation more. mixes don't sound so hot. Can we do something about it? Hey, Scott, what's up with the Hoffman's guitar tone? Can't can't we do something about it? Think of the pressure Scott was under to to get all those things done, and then the fact that he worked fourteen, sixteen hour days." over time to get these records done in that time, which is, is just remarkable. 
you know, and we, we left a lot of stuff on the cutting floor of guys who just, who just couldn't hang, right? Like guys who couldn't play their parts and were, were very sloppy, but I think out of respect to them, we didn't go that far into the book. So Scott dealt with that a lot. He dealt with dudes who just couldn't play sloppy. And, you know, Scott brought this up a lot. Most bands at the time were only used to hearing themselves in a very noisy rehearsal room yeah. or on stage where they can't articulate anything. Well, once they're put under the microscope at more sound, Scott says, all right, you know, uh, uh, the metaphor is, you know, let me take a look under the hood. You know, and let me look at your amps and pickups and, you know, bands would walk in sometimes to record with Scott and they'd be unprepared or they just couldn't play their parts. So it was up to Scott. He has a week to do it. He's got to figure it out. And more often than not, he did. Yeah, no, it's very. Yeah, I said that's true, David. And we talked about that at length. And that's 100 percent correct is. But I, to throw in there just to make sure for the outsider is the bands always made, you know, I would say something and the bands would come to an agreement, right? I mean, once again, is that they knew too who was playing well and who wasn't playing well. And as we've said previously, is that the the greater the band was, the more that they focused on trying to make a great record and trying to make it sound good. Because back to what you were saying, Jim, is the one thing that was important for us is, and this is probably why I left like on the punk side of things was, is that, you know, the sloppiness and all bothered me. You know, I've told David, one of my favorite bands is Steely Dan. And people will say, well, how the fuck can you like Steely Dan and Suffocation or Cannibal Corpse or whatever? But I appreciate bands that go into a, make a record and it sounds well. At the same time is I am, Appreciate punk rock and brutality. So I think there's a happy medium. And to me, that's why punk rock kind of left me that I loved about the death metal guys was the technicality of it. And that all the guys, they they liked to see who could really play and they liked to listen. To, you know what I mean? That was the thing with the drum sounds was is see who's really playing, who's not cheating, etc. You know, David and I go over that a lot in the book. But so I, like I said, is I think these guys all, even though some guys didn't play some part, some guys did, but the band was the one that made the decision because they realized after hearing themselves under a microscope, as David said, is, hey, you know what I mean? Let's make a great record, right? We can go, listen, we can go practice before the tour and whatever and do that, but we only got one shot. We got a week in here. Yeah. <clears throat> something you mentioned, David, was was leading to that. Um obviously there's some things you would have left on the cutting room floor. What else did could are there how many bands do you say that you couldn't get in touch with? About twenty one ish? Is there anything else that you've Yeah in, in, well in, in all so in all much, of this? Yeah. It's actually not so much down to bands, it's people that Scott and I were more hung up on. And the one guy we tried desperately to get was Chris Barnes of I know he's not right. a Roadrunner band, but Chris Barnes, we tried we tried every angle to get him to do the book. I mean, Albert tried to help too. And he you know, relations are probably not at a good spot right now between him and the the cannibal camp. So there was that one. Uh Jim, I don't know if you've spoken with him for your documentary, but Colin Richardson's a guy we couldn't get either you know because no so yeah monty said colin's not a guy to go on the record very much and that's just not his cup of tea but you know mm. there was a sort of rivalry there you know between scott thomas scott you know who scott brought up earlier over at sunlight and 
and Colin, and that then you could throw Dan Swano into the mix too. Those were sort of like the big four of the extreme metal producers mm. of the time. And there's some good stories in there of uh, Colin coming over and, and working with Scott and the situation being a little tense at the time. It would have been great to get Colin's perspective on that. But no, I mean, I, outside of that, I, we got just about everyone we wanted. The one person I really wanted to do a follow-up interview with was Glenn Benton, but uh, they were on tour and doing all sorts of things. I talked to Glenn for a while at first, and he coined that infamous line, which really set the tone for the book was, you know, Scott Burns is a guy I could trust with my wallet. You know, if Glenn Benton says that, I think that speaks volumes about somebody. But um, no, I, I mean, you know, we didn't we didn't leave that much out, actually. And the book is 480 pages, so we, yeah, we, we did our – we did our darndest to uh, to get everybody, and um, who knows? Maybe there'll be a second edition of this, and Scott and I have to do it all over again. But no, we 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 were very fortunate that 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 was the cool thing about the book is I would reach out to a band, whether it was a bigger band, you know, we can go back to Cannibal. Those guys were all over talking to Scott. They just love Scott, whether it's Grinder, Corpse Grinder, or Brownie. Scott used to call him, or you know, Alex, Paul, the main main Rob Barrett. Scott's favorite guitar player. Um, they were all over it, so that was that made it really easy to do. So that, and then when you get down to the bands that were maybe a little bit more obscure, they were all into it too. It's like, oh yeah, we loved working with Scott. So that made my job sort of easy. So we got really lucky. Yes, a few people left out, but for the most part, we got we got who we wanted. Were there any lessons from the obituary book that you had to carry over? Because in terms of scale, you're not dealing with just one set of dudes. It's like much, much, much bigger. So is there anything yeah. you have to amend? I had experience doing a bigger book before because my first book was about noise records. And that was that was actually longer than Scott's book. But that's sort of misleading because the publisher asked me to do like Noise's discography, like everything Noise did. And I think that added to the page length. But that was sort of a similar project because you're dealing with multiple bands mm. and people. So that sort of prepared me. Granted, that was six or seven years ago. So... The, the nice thing was, I mean, we went right from the obituary book into Scott's book. So I was in full Floridian death metal mode. I did not need to be educated on anyone or anything. Uh, a lot of the contacts I made during the obituary book were really easy just to carry over. Like I could think of someone like Steve DiGiorgio, for instance, who played with obituary for a quick tour and was really good friends with Scott. I mean, he was, he was a huge help for the book. And I made friends with him during the obituary book. But for Scott's book, we spoke four or five times. I actually just spoke to him last week about something else. But I mean, Steve became a friend. So that the obituary book was a just the perfect segue into Scott's book. Mm. No, I totally understand that. I mean, when I, when I read the intro and you said it was something like 100 and so interviews over 18 months, I was like, oh, my God, what? Oh my god! I've yeah, been so out, that's why it's been weird being interviewed. Three years, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it helps having a deadline. You know, uh, Dustball and Albert establish a deadline for it, and you sort of just back your way into that. And Scott and I were really consistent. There were very few times where we had to cancel. Or I, I think we always, coincidentally, Jim, we always spoke at this time every Thursday, eight p.m. Eastern Standard yeah, Time. Right. So Scott's Scott's Good in Florida, day. and I'm. I'm up here in Pittsburgh, so we're in the same time zone, and it was it was like clockwork, and it's something we both look forward to. And yeah, you, know, you just have to chip away at it. You know, a book of this size, you just go bit by bit. Sometimes we had to go back over bands. You know, sometimes there's a thing that Scott remembered or something someone brought up, so we'd have to go back over things. But you know, like like we said at the beginning, when you're working with someone who is as gracious and nice and polite as Scott, that that makes your job really easy as a writer. 
Yeah. I just so, hope hope all the band. I hope all the once again is the real thing that David captured is. I hope that the fans, you know, all the people that lived through it, that love those albums, that they it brings back good memories, right? Because it was a great time, right? And it's nice to see a lot of some of the bands are still around, but I hope it brings back good memories for all the fans because it was a great time, you know. No ifs, ands, or buts yep. about it. It was fun. Never see something like it again, yep. Well, right, not, yeah, maybe, but yeah, it was not. fun. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, great. definitely. Okay, Scott, I've got a few questions for you which sort of fall outside the scope of the book directly because I don't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to ask for stories which are going to be in the book, so I tried to keep it a little bit left of field. So, no problem. You, yeah, you start out in live sound. What what got you into that? Well, uh, like we talk about it in the book is I, I played trombone uh, from when I was a kid in concert band, school band, all that good stuff. So I had musical background, like punk rock came around. My friends kind of had like a punk rock old way band when I – this is when I was like 18, graduated high school, and they needed a sound man. And they had a PA, and the guitarist knew how to do it. And Dave talks about it. You know, we talk about it in the book. And he said, hey, you want to do sound? I was like, sure. So he taught me how to do sound, and I loved it. I thought it was fun. and uh, But I hated live sound, particularly, not hated it, but it was always a battle every time because the room sounded different. We won a recording contract, or for, won some Battle of the Bands, got to do a song. It was a studio. It was crappy in Tampa. And I said, ah, there's got to be a better studio than this. And voila, after going to a bunch of studios, I met Jim, Tom, and Rick Miller at Morrisound. And then I just started doing it. And I just loved – I, I love music, you know, like – David and I talked one day. We both had like 10,000 records in our collection. I mean, we just, mm-hmm. we liked music, right? We're kids that like you probably, Jim, just love music. And I like to, re- you know, so I, I started working at Morrisound as an assistant and the rest is history. But I just liked music. That was it. And I liked rock and roll. I mean, heavy rock, rock and roll, anything with guitars, bass and drums, and anything left of the dial, weird, non-pop, I liked it. So I was a good fit, I guess. During, I mean, just going back onto the live samba, this isn't like the, these days where you can save your scenes and you can like you can have every all the phases are going to be preset to the band and things. This was a completely different era. Did you ever have like a complete, absolute fucking nightmare moment with a with a, a live act? Absolutely. We, our band got hired to do sound for, because we had like one of the better punk rock or post-rock PAs in the Tampa Bay area. We did a show at the Cuban Club. Uh, Tony and Dave of No Clubs Productions, who I love, Tony, Dave, they're still around. They hired us to do the circle jerks. So we set up the PA. Our PA was good for maybe 100, 200 people. The circle jerks probably brought in a thousand people. You couldn't hear shit. 
I remember the singer coming up to me afterwards saying, you guys fucking suck. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm sorry, buddy. What can I fucking do? You guys are huge. And we have a little PA. It was the utmost disaster of the world. The only time you could hear anything was when he talked in between songs. And they were so pissed off. But, you know, it was punk rock in 1983. So, I mean, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> so when something like that happens, man, I I, I equate it to bombing for a stand-up. There's the yeah. feeling, that, that sinking feeling. Once it happens like two or three times or something like that, then you just go, oh, fuck it, it's cool. Just, right. Tomorrow's always another day. Yeah, tomorrow's another day, but you, like you said, is after the first song, you know, you're, you're on the Titanic. It's a disaster. But that's why I ended up saying is, you know what? I didn't have the money to buy a PA, the recording thing. I like the control environment. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. people take a different path. But but anyway, so that's why I was lucky to meet Jim and Tom and Rick because they really had it going on. And it was easy to see back in the day is that, you know, David talks about it in the book. They built their own eight-channel mixers, things like that, that it made life nice. I mean, uh, they really were ahead of the game. Yeah, I've got um, Tony from Whiplash on the dock mm. talking about um, Morrison was the only studio that was built the ground up as a studio. Everything else was tapped onto an old bar or something like that. This was a brick and mortar. Everything was about the music. It was. They, yeah, they built it from the ground up. They did it, yeah, no doubt. So you mentioned that metal in this period and death metal in this period is not very cool. It's It's definitely underground. So where's your wife fit into this? Because her husband's going off and doing this really uncool thing for 10 years. Was she always like, well, you got to do what you got to do? Oh, my wife. Sorry, I missed that. My wife? Yeah. yeah. How, how does she perceive this all the way through? Is she a metal, a metal chick or is she like, what the fuck is my husband doing for 16 hours a day? No, my wife's not a metal chick. I mean, she likes music, but, uh, you know, uh, she just knew I liked it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it did it it did take a strain, right? There's no doubt about that because I was gone for a long time. And, uh, you know, at the end, David talks about it in the book. That, you know, that's one of the reasons why I said, fuck it, I'm done. And I'm going to go on and have, you know, regular life, kids and, and stuff like that because – it does take a strain working that many hours, but, mm. um, no, she, you know, my wife is the best and I love her and, uh, we're still happily married and, you know, but it, it was a lot. And, you know, I mean, when you're young though, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, working 16, eight, 16 hours, 15 hours, seven days a week, isn't that, uh, big a deal, but, you know, you do it for 10, 12 years and it's not so good as, you know what I mean? And, and, mm. and you know, the other thing too was, is, you know, David mentions in the book is the scene gets up. And I say this and some of the bands maybe will be disappointed, but the scene gets tired. It's like any music scene, right? That it's great in the beginning and then everything starts to feed off itself and, you know, it's repetitive, and so, you know, and 
that it is just what it is. So that's why, like I said, I was lucky to be a part of it, but everything comes to an end. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got a particular spinal tap moment at Morris Sound that you could share? <laughs> Drummer turns up without a kit. There's only one well, man that turns up, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'll think for a second. Uh, I'll talk for a second. <laughs> it's all right. Take your time. I can edit the space out. No, I mean, David, you – what we talk about where who used Marquez, some one of the bands had a bad oh, kit. Demented Ted. Yeah. Yeah, the guy from Demented Ted showed up and his kit was so bad that he did a few, uh, you started setting up his kit, he rolled, through, played through it once and I think you stopped him dead in his tracks and you, Alex Marquez of uh, Malevolent Solstice fame usually left his kit at the studio. Scott would throw yeah. some money his way and so that's what they ended up using. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, so, yes, absolutely. Thanks, David. Yeah. But, you know, like I said, is a lot of times back in the day, kids, you know, but it goes back to the point is, Jim, I guess to say this is we were all just winging it. I mean, I knew from what Jim and Tom and Rick had taught me and stuff about good drums or getting good equipment, but at the same time is most of the guys didn't have much experience and it's not to diss on them or anything because they were all 18 years old or something, right? I mean, mm. and it's not like today where you can watch a YouTube video or TikTok and somebody can show you something. We were all just figuring out on our own, but there was quite a few days where guys showed up with bad equipment and I mean, uh, Tom, you know, we had Thoroughbred Music, which Elliot owned, who was always very good to the studio and let us get equipment. But, yes, there were many a days when, you know, people showed up with not such good equipment. And at the same time, it was difficult for me. That's why, like, some people gave me a lot of shit about, like, say, this guitar sounds no good or whatever is. I didn't have a bank, and I'm not making any excuses. Things are different today. I didn't have a bank of plugins, right? I mm -hmm. could go to a music store. I could get as many pedals. I could get as many amps, cabinets with different configurations of 25-watt Celestians, 35-watt Randalls, whatever. Anybody said, this sounds better, and try them. But you were just figuring it out on your own, and some days were better than others. So, yes, it's a good question, Jim. There were a lot of spinal tap moments. <laughs> uh, this is, I guess, is addressed to, to both of you in, in your respective fields. But what would you regard as the biggest pitfall of the music industry? Go ahead, Dave. Greed. <laughs> Greed, right? That's probably probably it. You know, there are people people out there just to make a quick buck who are interested in commerce and not art. That That is... That is probably, and Jim, I'm sure you're dealing with that with your documentary, and Scott dealt with it all the time. Yep. You know, Scott worked, and he can speak up too. You know, Scott worked insane hours and worked on some highly influential records that sold well and, you know, didn't make a lot of money out of it because it's just how the money was, the money flow was set up. So greed is always the, 
the downfall, unfortunately. You know, if people did it for the sake of creativity and just to put cool stuff out, it might be a different story. But it sucks to say, even in metal, you know, even our beloved scene that that exists, you know, and got to mm. fight through it somehow. As your fellow countryman, Jazz Coleman from Killing Joke said, money is not our God. But unfortunately, <laughs> for most people, as David said, in the record industry, money is their God. And I'll just give you my, what David said sums it all up perfectly. There's not much to add is, but, you know, I got paid just a lump sum, which is fine. The two records that I took, I was given points on, I gave them back, Cannibal Corpse and DSI, because I, you know, the bands would come in, second album, third album, they Tell us they're still not making any money. You know, they're cross-collateralized is the word. You know, and I was like, who the fuck am I to get more money or when you prorated across members of the band? Why should I get more money? Or, you know, I mean, they were, I think I got like $100 off a Cannibal Corpse record one time. But still, when those guys don't have any money, why should I get that money? Why should I make more than them? They wrote the songs. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have a job. So I agree, greed, and uh, but I guess that's the record label money, and they feel that they put up that money and made these bands, but I disagree, and like I said, money is not our God. So. Yeah. What's the hardest time you've ever laughed? Or time you've laughed the hardest? Is that better English? There you go. Say that again. I missed that. I'm sorry. When can you name a time that you've? Oh man, I'm, I'm losing the English on it now. What's the time that you've laughed the hardest? What? When is there a, a, a thing or a something that happened that made you laugh the hardest you've ever laughed in your life? Again, to mm. both of you. Oh. oh wow, that's that's a good one. I, I mean, <laughs> some guys tell some pretty it, funny stories. Yeah, I mean, well, I remember like Jason Blackowitz from Malevolent Creation. He had a bunch of these crazy tattoos on his arm, and they looked like jailhouse tattoos, right? They weren't all like cool looking fancy tattoos. And he's telling the story of how he partied too much one night <laughs> and he woke up and his buddies had tattooed him. And that was pretty funny because it was like, he said, well, yeah, I started scrubbing my arm <laughs> and they didn't come off. <laughs> and, so, and then I remember like with Exhorter, Kyle, you know, uh, they called me up when they came down and they were like, hey, Kyle's in jail. And I was like, what? You know, Kyle's super cool. He's not like criminal kind of bad. You know, I mean, we all get into little problems in life. but And so there was a street sign by the studio. And I forget if it was his name or uh, Thomas yeah, Adams. Yeah, it was um, his last name. Thank you, David. Yeah. And uh, so it was on the ground or something. So he picked it up and a cop happened to drive by and uh, pick him up and... You know, 
take him to jail for stealing the street sign. You know, and so I had to go down there and whatever. We just paid the hundred dollars to get him out. But it was like, it, just, it was I'm not laughing. It was funny as hell because it was like, what? How the hell do you? You know, you, it's not like you ripped a sign off the pole, right? You just took yeah. it or whatever it was on the ground. That was funny. And anyway, but you know, just, you know, a lot of the interactions between the guys, uh, you know, I remember uh, Cerrito and Hobbs from Suffocation arguing about guitar tones, giving each other shit. And, you know, you just kind of have to be there to, to see it. Uh, but, Brilliant. you know, yeah, but we always had, I mean, we always, you know, playing uh, Cannibal Guys and Steve Heritage from Asuk. We used to play uh, uh, Madden hockey all the time and uh, wrap around. I mean, those guys were big Buffalo Sabres fans, and uh, they would just play hockey forever in the lounge and just laughing, rolling on the floor, each other, like betting money and uh, it was a good time. So. But how about yourself, David? Ooh, uh, there were a lot of funny things that Scott shared with the book. The Kyle Thomas thing was really good. You know, Jay, Jay Black also had a good story. Jason Black also shared a good story of him running into Ingve at Criteria Studios after Ingve made a number two in the studio and called him like butt nut or something like that. That made me laugh really hard because you could picture Ingve. You could picture Ingve doing that. The, uh, Luke LeMay, who Jim, I don't know if you've spoken with yet from, from Gorgots, who's just a great guy, shared the story of how they had to trick Canadian customs to get into the United States by posing as tourists here so they, they could get through without being sent back. I, I laughed really hard at that. Just the way Luke delivered the story was was really mm. good. Um, mm. Yeah, that, those those were all some of the really funny moments during the book. No, no, very good. Now on the complete opposite end, have either of you ever seen a ghost or have a gnarly ghost story as it is October? Mm. I haven't, Scott. Not not to my knowledge. I don't know if you've seen anything in... Uh, no, I'm an atheist. I don't really believe in any uh, mystical stuff. Sorry, buddy, but nah, I haven't That's seen any right. ghosts. I just had Count Chocula cereal, which has ghosts in it, you know, Ooh. marshmallow ghosts. My daughter wanted to buy it, so that, we, we had that. So maybe that counts for something. Now, yeah. to wrap up, I'm going to do something very tedious. But I promise you, Scott, this is the thing. This is the, the answer to this question and the discussion that's going to follow is the thing that I'm going to plaster on social media with the intention that you never have to answer this question again. That's Mm. the point of this. Are you ever ever going to consider coming back to producing? No. And I'll tell you why. Uh, We talk about it in the book with Tell the Dirt, right? I mean, listen, I would love to. And I tried to with Tell the Dirt. And one is... I'm just being honest. I could sit around and probably be a producer and give you some ideas, a band, about what I think is good, bad, songwriting, sounds, etc. I do not, even though I'm a technologist in my day job, I'm not a technologist in the audio world. And I think the other thing is that, to be honest, is, my, and we we talked about it in the beginning, is my time has passed, right? The beauty of me, if there is any, and my 
smiling face is that in the beginning, you know, we were all winging it. Nowadays, the kids aren't winging it. They all know the deal. They all know the drill. They all have pro tools. They all have plugins. They can make everything sound much better than I ever did. So there is no need for Scott Perks, right? And I had fun and it was great, but really is there's nothing I can add to any band. Like I, when I saw Hobbs, you know, David talks about it in the book in the Death to All tour, uh, you know, Suffocation opened up. You know, that, that album, that 2000, the 2017 album, the last one he did, I know they got a new single out and stuff, but one of the last albums, like, it sounds better than the stuff I've done. And, and he does that with the obituary guy up in, uh, uh, Joe thank you, Joe Cicada. All these guys, there's no need there. You know, I had a place in time and that's it. Right. But there's, mm-hmm. Nothing I can bring to the table anymore that you can't figure out on your own. Because like I said, these kids have had 20 years of learning from these bands. And the other last thing I'll just say, 10 seconds is, it's a testament to these bands that they're still around. It's not about me. It's about the bands. And they're still around. Deicide, Obituary, Cannibal Corpse, all these bands are still doing well. Suffocation. I mean, whoever I've forgotten, I don't mean, but saying is cynic guys, atheist guys, Till the Dirt, all of them, they're still around making records. They're not making records with Scott Burns, so they must be doing something right. So uh, I had a good time, and that's it. So thank you. I'm going to articulate that a little bit. Because some people are going to come back and think you think you're being dejected, and it's like no, 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 no. The no. barrier to entry has never been lower, but that's not the point. The point is Scott Burns is an innovator and a problem solver. There are no problems left to be solved. It's <laughs> it's it's not it's yeah. not yeah. I mean, and the thing is though, Scott, there's nothing stopping you from coming back and doing it as a hobby, except the fact that you'd have to manage everyone's expectations, and that's just like an exercise in futility, especially yeah. for with respect, a man who just wants to do the job, go home and crack open a beer and watch, watch what, what's the, the sports team you like? Uh, the Rays, but no, I, I that's fine, Jim, but I will say this. I'll say this is a challenge to any new engineer. And some of you guys will just tell me to go fuck myself. Figure out a way to make symbols sound good on the new records. Everybody's kick drums and snares. They all sound killer. But your drum sounds are unrealistic, and you guys all may like that. But they don't sound like real records. They sound better than my records, don't get me wrong. But they don't sound like a drummer sitting there. So you guys figure that out. Thank you. <laughs> Lots. Brilliant. That, that's it. Is there any other, any other comments you want to make, David or Scott? Is there anything you want to add in there? Um, no, there's there's nothing to add after that. I think Scott did his mic drop, his drum mic drop. So. <laughs> I just mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.